announcements. We're going to turn now to God's holy word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse uh, 17. Hear the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and uh, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until, his, until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things... I will give directions when I come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we pray that you would take these words and apply them into our lives, into our community, um, shape us into the people that um, you would have us to be, shaped by the gospel, shaped by your grace. So we open our hearts and minds to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been uh, spending three of the last four summers looking at the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're going to be continuing that study this morning. Uh, one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, the early church to the, the church in the Roman city of Corinth, was because uh, the church was a divided church. Some of you have maybe had church experiences where you've been in a divided church. There's been personal conflicts, moral conflicts, maybe theological differences. It's immensely painful being in a church like that, well, that was the situation in Corinth. There was all kinds of fighting and divisions. 
And this passage that we're looking at today, this morning, uh, talks about um, the significance of the Lord's Supper. This is maybe the most important passage teaching about the Lord's Supper in the whole New Testament. And it brings up this very theme of disunity in the church. Maybe you caught that there in verse 18. You see what it says? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now the Lord's Supper, the communion, what we do every week, is one of the most important symbols to us and to the world of the unity of Christians, that we are one family, we are bound together, we're bound to one another. It's one of the most important statements of that. And in Corinth, it had become a place of division. And ancient Corinth is located on the little isthmus in the Greek peninsula. And it was a port city that was, would have been the main stop for you know, merchants traveling from, from Asia to Italy. And so it brought a lot of wealth into this town. And so we know that, that uh, Corinth was stratified socioeconomically. There were these classes, this big gap between the rich and the poor. And so there's reason to think that this class system in the city of Corinth had infiltrated the church. And the church now had these different classes in it. And so that the church had been segregated between the rich and the poor. And this was happening at the Lord's Supper. Look at what it says in verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is amazing what's happening during communion. The rich are getting drunk. (laughs) feasting, partying, and the poor are off by themselves. Maybe they're waiting on them, and they're being their servants, and then they get the scraps at the end of this meal, something like that. So this division had happened in the Lord's Supper. And so it's this issue of the segregating of the poor in the church that gives occasion to the longest explanation of the Lord's Supper that we have in the New Testament. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about this sacrament, and which is a deeply important part. It's an important part of our life together, our community. It's been deeply important to Christians throughout history. Throughout the last 2,000 years of the church, the communion, or what was called the Eucharist, was the center of their spiritual life. And so this morning I want to make uh, four observations from this passage about how we should understand the Lord's Supper. And this is what they are. That the Lord's Supper, first of all, should be frequent. You should take the Lord's Supper frequently. The Lord's Supper should be communal. The Lord's Supper should be for children. And the Lord's Supper should be the gospel. So four things, frequent, communal, for children, and the gospel. And part of the reason these four things we're going to hit on, this passage really has shaped the way that we take communion here at Christ Church. And so some of the things you might say, why do we do it that way? The answers are in here, and we're going to get to them as we go along. So... Four, four points on the Lord's Supper. The first is this, this morning. The, the Lord's Supper should be frequent. And part of the reason I say that is uh, I know that for some of you, if you grew up in the church and you came to our church and we have communion every week, you didn't do that. And you say, wow, you know, that's a new experience for me. And the reason that many Protestant churches don't take the Lord's Supper every week is because during the time of the Reformation, the Reformers, 
saw the Roman Catholic Church, and the Roman Catholic Church, they said, had a very superstitious kind of view of the Lord's Supper, where it was almost like you'd come and take communion, and it was like God was filling you up with his grace. He was infusing you with his grace. And then you walk out of the church, and, you know, you get in a fight with your wife or something, and all of a sudden you lost your grace, and then you got to get back to the Lord's Supper and get refilled up. And so it was this, you were in flux all the time that you would kind of fall in and out of God's grace. And so the Reformer said, approaching God that way is not healthy. You know, I'm, I'm in with him, I'm out with him all the time. And so to avoid a kind of superstitious vision of the Lord's Supper, they began to take it much more infrequently. So, you know, maybe once a quarter. There are some churches that once a year. And maybe, you know, some churches maybe once a month. More recently, many Reformed churches are realizing, you know, that may have been an overreaction. You know, we, we shouldn't have our practice shaped by saying, well, we don't want to be like them, so we're going to do something different. And in fact, passages like this one that we just read suggest that the Lord's Supper is an essential part of our worship when we come together. And actually, that's one of the words that Paul repeats over and over in this passage, when you come together. You see, what, you see that there, verse 18? For in the first place, when you come together as the church. Or in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Or in verse 33, down at the bottom there. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And actually, later in chapter 14, he uses that again. He says, when you come together for a hymn or for a lesson or for an interpretation or revelation, the church's worship life is, is defined by when we gather that's what the word church means. It's, a, it's a, an assembly, a gathering. It's when we come together to worship God. And he says in this passage, when you come together, you come together and you eat. We're eating in God's presence. We come together for the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and so this is the reason that it's a regular part pattern. It's why we take communion every week. We say we want to receive God's grace from him as frequently as we come together. Now, I've had people say to me, as they come to this church, maybe this is you, that say, you know, if we take communion every week, doesn't it kind of lose its specialness? You know, if we do it once a quarter, it's like this big deal, and then we can put a lot of meaning into it, but it becomes this kind of routine thing, and then, you know, it kind of loses its significance. How do we answer that? Is that true? You know, if you do something rich, you know, ritual, regularly, habitually, does it have less meaning because of that. Well, I think in some ways, we know absolutely that's not true. You know, the example I was thinking of is when I was a kid, uh, my dad had a uh, phrase that he would always say to me, you know, I'd be running around, he'd say, how much dad love him? And then I would respond by saying, so much and lots and lots. And it was like this phrase, and I say it to my kids now, how much do I love them? So much and lots of us. How much? It was every day. I'd hear it, you know? And, and sometimes, you know, it'd be like really, like he wants to communion, you know, look me in the eyes. How much do I love them? You need to hear this. So much and lots and lots. It's powerful. Sometimes I'm running out the door, and it's like, see you later. How much do I love them? So much. And, you know, church life is a little like that. Sometimes we come to church, and there, you come to church sometimes and you feel like that Sunday God was grabbing me by the face and looking me in the eyes and say, you need to know I love you. And there are other times we come, we say, you know, I'm learning some things, I'm teaching, I gather with God people. It wasn't as life-changing as other times. They're all important. And you gather all those together. And the question is, is it more powerful for my dad to say that to me every day or is it more powerful for him to say, you know, we're going to stick to four times a year 
we're going to schedule it out and do it four times a year. No way. It's the repetition that really trains our hearts. Communion is like God giving you a hug. I know that sounds kind of sentimental, and, but it really is a physical expression of his love for you. Communion is his welcome and embrace of you as his children. And we would never say to God, let's not overdo the hugs. Too many hugs and I'm gonna, I, they're going to become routine. No, we're going to say, I need them. And so that's why I think the Lord has us to come to his table frequently. And actually, a lot of Protestant Christians have, have resisted and you know, pushed back and said, you know, Things like liturgies, rituals, routines that are in our lives deeply shape our hearts and deeply shape what we love. We need to have those built into our life. And so um, it's not only meaningful when we have these liturgies and habits, these you know, rites that we go through individually, but we have these rites as a community. We have communal rites that bind us together. And that's also what's happening in the Lord's Supper. And that's the second thing. It's not just that the Lord's Supper should be frequent. But the Lord's Supper should be communal. And that's, that's an important part of our life together. You know, when we take communion, we say, greet one another. When you come forward, and some of you are taking communion, people are chatting and checking in on their week and how, what's happening with this. You mentioned last week this is going on, and we're checking in on, on one another. And so there's a whole communal aspect uh, to that. And the reason, and you know, for some of you, you might say it's kind of distracting to have people talking while I'm taking communion. And you know, you got to find a way in our own culture to, to do what God's calling us to. But it, it's possible to have an overly individualistic view of the Lord's Supper. It's just me and Jesus. It's just quiet. I'm closed my eyes, and I don't pay any attention to anyone else that's around me. But you know, the early theologians, both early medieval theologians and the patristic fathers, operated under the assumption of what you might call the triple body of Christ. They said that there were three bodies. You know, Jesus was God become a man. God took on a body, he became a human. So Jesus has a personal body, the body that was crucified, the body that was raised from the dead, the body that's ascended into heaven is now, Jesus has taken on humanity for all eternity. He's bound God to eternity. Or God bound God to humanity for all eternity. And uh, so there's this personal body. But then Jesus takes the bread and he says to the bread, this is my body broken for you. And then he goes and he says to the church and the community and all of us in our life together, you are the body of Christ. You are now Jesus' physical presence in the earth, in all the nations. And so there is a kind of harmony between these three. And when we take the meal, Jesus is forming us as a community into his hands and feet in the world. People who do his work, people who speak his word. And that's why just two one chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, this is what Paul says, the bread, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one loaf. It's one loaf that binds us all together. So the Lord's Supper is about forming us into a community, into a family, into a body. And that's why the Lord's Supper is one of the most important symbols of Christian unity there is. 
And that's also why in our church, you know, if you're a visitor to our church, it doesn't matter if you're Baptist or you're Presbyterian or you're Lutheran or you're Methodist or you're a Roman Catholic or you're an Eastern Orthodox, if you have been baptized in the name of the triune God, you worship our God and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are our sister, you are a brother, you are our family. And you are welcome to Jesus' table. You can come here and feast with us. This is a communal meal of unity. Now, if you've been coming to Christ Church for very long, though, you might say, this church does isolate some people from the Lord's table. Because if you're here, you know every week we say, we require that you've been baptized and you put your faith in Jesus in, in order to take the Lord's Supper. And it says, you know, it sounds like, sounds like you're leaving some people out, right? Where does that requirement come from? Well, Paul talks about baptism later in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 12. He talks a lot about the Lord's Supper and baptism in these, in these few chapters right in here. And this is what he says in chapter 12, verse 12. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, right? It says, doesn't matter where your background, we're all one, we're unified, there's no segregating, right? But we were baptized into the body, and then he says, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. So you notice the ordering. You're baptized into the body, and then Jesus feeds his body with the bread and the wine. The body is nourished. And, um, and so what that means is that at the Lord's table, there is one point of challenge. There's a point of discomfort. I mean, some of us, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian. If you've been here and, and you know that I say, you've got to be baptized and put your faith in Jesus to take the bread and wine, you say, well, it's kind of uncomfortable. It should be uncomfortable. Jesus is calling all people everywhere to turn from their sins, turning from being their own God, and to be reconciled to our Creator through Him. And the Supper is saying, is reminding us, unless we have put our faith in Jesus, unless we have been identified with His death and His life through baptism and offered our lives to Him, then we don't know God. We are lost in the world. And that may be you, you here today. You might say, I, I don't know my creator. The Lord's Supper it does draw a line in the sand. But the line that it's not drawing, it's not a line between Presbyterians and Lutherans and, you know, all the, we are all Christians. <laughs> it's drawing a line between those who know Jesus and those who do not. And so it is a call for us to come to him, Okay. So the Lord's Supper is community, and it's through baptism. We just saw Taylor. That's how you entered into the family of God. It's the, the mark, the right that enters you into the family. And then the family meal is the Lord's Supper. But, you know, there is another dividing line that this passage has been used to create in the church where there is a population in the church of weak members who have been segregated from the rest of the body during communion. And uh, that is the third point that I want to address, is that the Lord's Supper should be for children. Those weak members are the children in the church. 
And you'll notice in here, you know, this is the passage where every week when I do the Lord's Supper, this is where I take the words of institution, where I say, you know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. And so uh, Paul gives those words, the tradition of how we do the Lord's Supper in this passage. And then after those words, he says in verse 27, look at what it says. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, that's a strange passage. If you've never read that passage of Scripture, you might think it's strange because he's saying, okay, there are people that are taking communion in an unworthy manner. They have not examined themselves, and they're not doing something called discerning the body, and as a result, they're drinking judgment on themselves. Like, people are getting sick. Some people are dying because they're doing this wrong. And because of this verse, you know, many churches have created an atmosphere around the Lord's Supper that is deeply fearful. Maybe some of you felt that way around the Lord's Supper. You're like, oh man, it's Lord's Supper week. Fear is what is hovering over me as I think about this. And uh, the idea is you better be worthy. You had better confess all your sins or God is going to judge you in this meal. And the reason why children are kept away from the Lord's table is because it's said that they're not old enough to examine themselves. I actually heard a guy say once, he said, if children come and they drink that wine and they eat that bread, they are drinking God's wrath upon them. And you just think, you know, I think most of us think, is that really the case that the children of God's people come and eat the bread and the wine that they're drinking wrath upon themselves? Is that really what this is talking about? And... This, but this whole understanding of the Lord's Supper is missing the context of 1 Corinthians 11. We read earlier, what's happening in 1 Corinthians? The rich are getting drunk and partying while the poor are waiting on them. That's what Paul is angry about. That's what God is angry about. And so it's much more something like if you go down to the American, you know, we're down in the American South you know, 150 years ago or 200 years ago, and you had all the black people sitting in the balcony and all the white people sitting on the main floor, and all the white people get to take communion first, and the black people have to wait, and there's no intermingling of the body of Christ. There's a segregation happening. That is the kind of thing that you practice the Lord's Supper that way, that you're going to drink judgment on yourself. That's the thing we should be fearful about, is that we are marginalizing people. But to think that children... <laughs> Coming to say, I want to receive from Jesus and have my faith strengthened should come in fear is absurd. That's not what this text is talking about. And when Paul says that we should discern the body, what's the body? The very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, tells us the body is us. It's the people. And that means when you take communion, you need to open your eyes and look at the people around you. That's not what the, the Corinthians were doing. They were partying, and they were ignoring. They weren't discerning the body. They weren't seeing the other people who were a part of the body of Christ. When we understand this context for what Paul is saying, we understand that children discern the body from a very young age. They realize when they're three, four years old, this is Jesus' people. Aren't I one of Jesus' people? 
I want to be one of Jesus' people. What? And they see all of you eating the bread and the wine. And they say, I want to take the bread and wine with you. I want to do what, everyone, what Jesus' family is doing. And what are we going to say to them? No, you're not welcome here. You're not old enough. You're not sophisticated enough. You haven't proven enough that you are Christian enough or that you know enough or you do enough. That's a false gospel. And what that tells us is that if anyone should be examining themselves, it's not the children. It's those of us who would keep the children from coming to the Lord's table. We are the ones who should be fearful. And Paul says to us what a person needs. What do you need to do to take the supper in a worthy manner? He says in verse 33, it's quite simple. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. If you don't want to come on judgment then just make sure you wait for one another in line when you come forward. And a child should not be throwing temper tantrums during the Lord's Supper. So yeah, they might need to learn, they might maybe need to learn to do that. But God is not demanding that we get ourselves clean and perfect to come to Jesus' table. Jesus brings sinners. He knows we're sinners who need to be fed and we, we need our faith strengthened. And he encourages us to come. And so that's why as our practice in our church, when a child has been baptized and they say to their parents, I want to take communion, they meet with two of our elders and we ask them, so do you know that you have sin in your heart? And most kids know, yeah, I disobey my parents and I hit my brother and sister. And you say, that's sin that just comes out of you. Who's the only one who can take away your sin? Jesus. How did, what did Jesus do to take away your sin? He died on the cross for me. And did he stay dead? No, he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. And then and he's alive in heaven now. And we say, you know, when, when the, we break the bread, when was Jesus' body broken for you? They say, oh, on the cross his body was broken. When was his blood shed for you? It was on the cross when his blood was shed for me. That's what you need to know in order to come to this meal. And kids know that and can understand it at a very early age. Four-year-olds can understand that. And in fact, you'll notice even in this passage, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I had delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed. Do you know what night it was when Jesus was betrayed? It was a Passover. This is a transformed Passover. It's no longer Jesus saying there's a new exodus where we're not being saved out of slavery to Egypt. We're being saved out of slavery to our own sin. And if you go back to Exodus and you read about the Passover meal, there is instructions in there where the children are supposed to come and say, they're a part of the meal, and they say, what does this mean? And as you take the meal, the father would say to the children, well, you know, we were slaves in Egypt, and God's mighty hand came and saved us. And that's the same thing we should say to our children. As we're coming forward, we say, you know what? We'd, sin would rip our family apart. But Jesus has loves us, he forgives us, he cares for us, God has welcomed us into his family, and the Lord is our hope. And so this is a teaching time for children, and that's why they should come. And so for those of you kids who are here, who take the Lord's Supper, you know, you have to sit and listen to these long sermons, you think, wow, I can't understand everything that he's talking about up there. But kids, can you understand the bread? When we break the bread, you watch. Jesus' body broken for you. Jesus' blood shed for you. This is a picture for children. 
so that we can understand that anyone can come and receive the grace that is in Jesus. So the Lord's Supper is for children. But that question, what is the meaning of this, leads to our last point. So we have said that the Lord's Supper, it should be frequent, it should be communal, it should include children. But the last point is this, the Lord's Supper should be about the gospel. And, you know, I pointed out that the Lord's Supper has a very horizontal component to us. It's making us into a body. It's binding us together as a community. And I do think that the horizontal communal component is an important part of this passage. But something I've been reflecting on recently about Bellingham, our community, is, you know, Bellingham is a place where a lot of people move here. You know, some of you maybe grew up here. A lot of people didn't grow up here, and they move here, you know, because it's beautiful. They want to live in this part of the world. And so as a result, many of us come here, we, we don't have extended families here. Maybe we don't have, like, decades of friendships where we've really built deep, long friendships. And so we come, uh, we come to, um, uh, and so we come to church, and we're looking at one another saying, Will you, you know, we have a hunger to have a family, a hunger to have a network around us. And we're saying to each other, will you satisfy that hunger in me? Will you fill that emptiness, that loneliness that I'm feeling? And of course, community is an essential part of our human life. We need it. But uh, Henry Nouwen, who is a, a Catholic priest, wrote a, a book called Out of Solitude, where he talks about how the Christian life must be a back and forth between solitude and community. You can't just live in community. You can't just depend on community and people. But you need a solitude, a place where you have been with God, and that we go from that place of solitude, of meeting with God, into that community. And this is something that Nouwen says. He says, Somewhere we know that without a lonely place, our lives are in danger. And by a lonely place, he means a place where we meet with God alone. Somewhere we know that without silence, words lose their meaning. That without listening, speaking no longer heals. That without distance, closeness cannot cure. Somewhere we know that without a lonely place, our actions quickly become empty gestures. The careful balance between silence and words Withdrawal and involvement, distance and closeness, solitude and community forms the basis of the Christian life and therefore, and should therefore be the subject of our most personal attention. And what now is saying is what needs to happen in this meal is both of these things, both solitude and community. We should come to this meal watching all the people and the children eating the bread and wine, you know, it's good to see each other putting the bread in your mouth. And you say, Christ is in that person. Jesus is in that person. And it changes how we see each other, that Christ is in us. And we should do that. We are a family. But we should also come ultimately to Jesus alone. And we should say to him, no one can fill me. I've seen that. No one can meet my needs. No one can always be there for me. No one can live inside of me and give me life. 
Only you can. And, and then to hear him say to us, this is my body for you. Remember me. This is my blood shed for you. Remember this. Know it deep in your soul. Know it in a way that none of these people could ever communicate it to you. Which means that when we take communion, I think there are two moods that I think strangely need to go together. There is both a joy and celebration, the mood of God's children happily gathered around his table, and what our book of, uh, book of church order calls the meal should be grave. And when you hear the word grave, you should think gravity. There's a weightiness, a sacredness, a solemnity, a mood that leaves me in awe and wonder. I come forward to receive a great mystery, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ himself. And when we are a community of people who have all experienced that mystery, then we come away from the meal not with a neediness that will swallow other people up, but we come with an overflow with Christ himself in us. And we will truly be the body of Christ to each other and to Bellingham. Let's pray together. Thank you.